That's Galatians chapter 1, sorry about that, verses 6 to 10. As you're doing that, let me um, just mention, I hope you're not offended, but I, since I've been sneezing, it's allergy-related. Um, I'm probably not going to shake hands after the service uh, just because I keep sneezing, and we have Sunday school, so please don't be offended. I greet you in the name of the Lord now, and I hope to see you in Sunday school. Our verses are 6 to 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Or we ask now that as your, indeed your servants, as your followers, uh, that you would indeed uh, teach us from your word, uh, that we would understand completely uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far in this uh, series on the life and theology of the Apostle Paul, we've looked at his conversion, and we've looked at his transformation, and how it, it radically changed his whole life. Uh, the murderer who stood there by Stephen um, became the missionary. The persecutor of Christ became a, a proclaimer of Christ. We're told in Acts chapter 9 that Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the Son of God and that he was the Christ. That was Paul's gospel. That was his message. He kept proclaiming it. It was his conviction. And he would just keep proclaiming it. And he wouldn't keep it, though, to himself. Everywhere he went, he proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the divine son who came to reveal the Father to us, that he was the appointed prophet who pronounced an end to all sin, and that he was the appointed priest who sacrificed himself in our place, that he was the appointed king who rules over all. He would proclaim that he died on the cross at the hands of the Jews for our salvation, but was risen from the grave for our justification. And he proved it. All those claims about Jesus, he proved it by demonstrating from the Old Testament that all these things were prophesied before and promised to come to fruition. And what did he get in return? Well, the Jews hated him. He was despised for it. He was persecuted for it. Ultimately, he was martyred for it. Yet, during his life, in the midst of all that, he never ever stop proclaiming it. As the book of Acts points out, Paul becomes, as Jesus said he would become, he becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to think about that for a second, a missionary to the Gentiles. I would assume that most of us here are 
Gentiles. I don't know, maybe some of you have Jewish background, but my, my point is that most of us here are Gentiles. And I want you to think of how gracious it is and how kind it is that God gives us an apostle, an apostle to the Gentiles. See, prior to the message of the New Testament, of the gospel of salvation, uh, the message was almost exclusively limited to and confined to the Jewish nation. But now, through the Apostle Paul, the promise that was actually given in the Old Testament, given in, in Abraham, given in chapter 12 of Genesis, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, that promise now comes to fruition through the Apostle Paul. All the nations, not just Israel, all the nations would be the recipients of the gospel. Gentiles could be counted righteous by faith now. They could in the Old Testament, but, but now it's being proclaimed to them. This is what Paul says in the book of Galatians chapter 3. He says, the scriptures look forward to this time. When God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said all nations will be blessed through you. And so Paul saw that, that his calling and his mission uh, was promised way back in Genesis. And now he is, he's going to be proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And so with that background, we come to the book of Galatians. Here we have Paul's letter. It's his first letter, the first one that he wrote. It was written sometime around A.D. 50. There's debate over that always. Uh, Paul was converted in around A.D. 33. And now some 15 years later, he goes on, and then some 15 years later, what he does is he goes on his first missionary journey. He does that with Barnabas, and he goes to Galatia. That's around 48 A.D. And, and this missionary trip was a great success. Uh, we're told in Acts that in Poseidon, Antioch, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so here, here are these devout converts uh, to Judaism, we're now following Paul and Barnabas. And, and then we're told when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? That message of salvation we just talked about. When they heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region of Galatia. And then in Iconium, Paul and Bartimus entered together into the synagogues again and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed the gospel. That's chapter 14, verse 1. And then they went to Lystra where they welcomed like gods. People thought they were gods. That's verses 11 to 13 of chapter 14. And in Derby, they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, we're told in verse 21 of chapter 14. And so, the point being, this is an amazing missionary trip. Sinners were saved, miracles were performed, churches were planted. It was one of the most successful missionary trips in the history of all Christianity. But now there was a problem. Sometime within the first year or two, the church that Paul plants there in Galatia, the Christians there in Galatia were disturbing and um, kind of diverting from the gospel. What they were actually doing is they were adding to the gospel. 
it seems that a messenger came to Paul and said, guess what? He brought him a letter about what's going on in Galatia and reported that they were adding the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, And so it seems as Paul heard that, the messenger comes and tells him what's happening. As soon as he hears that, what he does is he begins writing a letter to Galatians. And to help you understand what was happening, here, let's ask a few questions. Let me ask you a few questions. First, are you comfortable making this statement? Are you comfortable saying that a person who is not a Christian, no matter how religious they are, that they're cursed by God, their sins are not forgiven, they won't go to heaven, and they will face an eternity in hell? Can you say that? Not that you're happy about saying it. That's not what I'm getting at. But, but you don't derive joy from it. But that are you bold enough to make that claim? That every other religion is wrong, and you were right if you believe biblical Christianity. Now, if you're uncomfortable making such a sweeping and bold claim, you're not alone. I I mean, claims like that don't fit well in our pluralistic, in our tolerant culture. If you have contact with unbelievers, I hope you do, you, you may have been asked the following questions. Isn't Christianity a little too narrow? Aren't all religions basically the same, and so it doesn't matter which one you believe? I've heard people say that. Is, isn't the choice of religion just a matter of personal preference? There's so many people in the world that don't believe in Christianity. Can they all be wrong? I believe for myself, somebody may say, I believe that Jesus is the way, but that doesn't mean there aren't other ways to God. I've heard those questions or those comments. People will tolerate a Jesus who is loving. People will tolerate a Jesus who is gentle and caring. A Jesus who's a, a good example for us. A, kind of the Jesus who feeds the hungry. But if you present them with a Jesus who is the only way to be saved, the only way to be forgiven, the only way to be a child of God, the only way to avoid hell and enter heaven, well then you're going to get chewed out. They're not going to like it. You're going to be called a bigot. They will not tolerate such a claim. See, we live in a culture defined by tolerance, not the right tolerance. You should be tolerant of people. If you go to the store and you run into somebody and they don't agree with you on everything, you can agree to what? Disagree, and, and, and you move on your way. You don't think they're right. They don't think you're right. Um, but you don't have to sympathize with those beliefs. So we can tolerate in that way. But that's not the tolerance that's being preached today and proclaimed and, 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 and embraced. The, the tolerance today teaches everyone's values, everyone's beliefs, everyone's lifestyles, everyone's claims to truth are equally valid. No one is right. And no one is wrong. They, they, they're speaking their truth. And so it becomes the truth. People now believe they have a right to never hear something they disagree with. They should never be critiqued or criticized for their beliefs. Absolute truth no longer exists in their minds. Except for the absolute truth that there's no absolute truth. 
And so in light of this view, this is why pluralism rules the day. Pluralism teaches that one's religion is not the sole and exclusive source of truth. Somebody who's a religious pluralist will basically believe that all roads lead to heaven and, and that Christians are considered intolerant, that they're ignorant and insensitive for saying that Jesus is the only way. And, and so that's the culture around us. And so how do we respond? Well, how did the Apostle Paul respond? He had a challenge to the gospel, and in no uncertain terms, he says, no, there's only one way. There's only one way of salvation, by believing the gospel that he preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that Christ lived for us and, 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 and gave us his righteousness, that he died for us, paying for our sins, that he rose again for us, that we may have justification. That is the gospel Paul is speaking of in our passage, and it's the only one, he says. It's the only way. And so here are these Galatians that want to change the gospel, kind of get along with the Jews and, and, and fit in, and they want to do that, and they're deserting what Paul preached. Look at verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Now that means to, to be surprised and and wonder at some unexpected event uh, that, that would never happen. And he, he's astonished by it. Paul was shocked by it. He was outraged by it. And the body of his letter here to Galatians sees with this indignation, says Phil Riken. He says, in con sharp contrast to every other letter, notice Paul's letters, read them. Paul in Galatians doesn't even pause to give any kind words. There's no thanksgiving for his readers. There's no expression in the letter of pleasure at their progress in the faith. He simply begins with an abrupt and passionate outburst. He cannot wait to begin his denunciation of those who were trying to cause the Galatians to depart from the heart of the gospel. He's kind of overwhelmed by this thought that so quickly after he established the church, they were now leaving the faith and that they were deserting God. Uh, and, and see, that's what verse 6 tells us. Um, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. To turn from the gospel is to turn from God. It's to turn away from God. And so why was this happening in, in, of all places, a church that Paul planted? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7. He says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh, maybe you have the NIV. It says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of, of Christ. Uh, these people were coming into the church, were part of the church, and they were kind of causing a disturbance in the church. They were, they were stirring up trouble. They were troublemakers. And they were causing trouble at the very heart of Christianity. What they were doing is distorting the gospel. Now, what they, these people were were known as, as the Judaizers. Uh, they were Jewish Christian legalists. They added works of the law on top of faith in Christ, uh, particularly in their case, they were requiring circumcision of these Gentile converts. 
And so they were taking what Paul taught, his sound theology, and perverting it. Understand, they weren't denying what Paul said. They were fine with Paul's gospel as far as it went, but they didn't think it was enough. They wanted to add something to it. Yes, salvation is by grace, but you're also law. It's by grace, but plus circumcisions. They didn't deny that Jesus died for people's sins. They didn't deny that aspect of the gospel. But they were saying is if you want the full gospel, if you want the full blessing of the gospel, if you truly want to know God and be saved, then you needed to be circumcised along with believing the gospel. That's the way you are to get that blessing. And, and see, the, uh, the Judaizers had the Old Testament history on their side. If you remember in the Old Testament, for a Gentile to become part of God's people, they had to be circumcised. And so it seemed reasonable enough. I mean, what's changed, they may say. And so you can see them making the case to the people. I mean, even Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so doesn't it make sense that you should be circumcised? It seems innocent enough. And so what's the big deal? Well, the truth is, it's the biggest deal. See, what it was doing was perverting the pure gospel of grace. And Paul didn't want to have anything to do with it. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, even if we, notice Paul includes himself. This isn't about Paul. He wasn't jealous because other people, people were following other people, so he was jealous of their teaching. No, this is about the gospel. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word for accursed is the word anathema. It means a person or a thing set apart or devoted to destruction. And it's devoted to destruction because it's hateful to God. To be anathema is to be under the divine curse. Paul is saying he would be damned if he preached a different gospel. He's saying, if I preached a different gospel than the one I preached to you, I'd be under the wrath of Almighty God. And he's saying that's what's true of these people. Basically, to put it bluntly, he's saying to hell with them And, and their teaching. May they be damned, he's pronouncing. Paul's not very tolerant when it comes to distorting the gospel. Um, Martin Luther said this. He talked about Paul's preaching. This is not preaching that gains favor with men or from the world. For the world finds nothing more irritating and intolerable than hearing its wisdom, righteousness, religion, and power condemned. If we denounce men in all their efforts, it is inevitable that we quickly encounter bitter hatred, persecution, excommunication, condemnation, and execution. That's what Paul faced. In fact, he was executed for taking a stand on the true gospel. And so this is why, if you think about it, did you notice what it said in verse 10? They were accusing Paul of wanting the approval of men. 
If that's the reaction that you get when you preach the gospel Paul preached, this is why he can say, for, am I now seeking the approval of men? Absolutely not. These people hate me for what I'm saying. Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, what I would do is take the focus off of Jesus. I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You see, these false teachers claim Paul was a people pleaser. And that's why he preached what he did. He would do anything to become popular, they were arguing. But nothing could be further from the truth. Paul always remained consistent. He, he was always committed to the gospel. And he was willing to call people out who distorted its teaching. Even if it meant his death. See, Paul could tolerate hardship. We'll read about that in, in his letters. He, he could tolerate famine. He could tolerate persecution. Um, ultimately, he could tolerate knowing that he was going to be killed for his faith. What he could not tolerate was somebody distorting the gospel, twisting the gospel. And so when he saw it happen, what did he do? He called it out. He condemned it, and then he corrected it. And so that leads to my second question. See, you should ask yourself, are you willing to claim that there's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ? But you should also ask yourself, can you distinguish between true and false gospels in the church today? Because they're here. Again, Phil Riken says, we worship in a church of many false gospels. You know, there's the gospel of material prosperity, you hear that one often, which teaches that Jesus is the way to financial gain. And if, if you're not rich, well, then you must not be following Jesus. You must not have enough faith. There's the gospel of family values, which teaches that Jesus is the way to a happy home. There's the gospel of self. Uh, Jesus is the way to personal fulfillment. There's the gospel of morality, which teaches that Jesus is the way to become a good person. And then there's the gospel of religious tradition, which teaches that Jesus is the way to be respectable in society. And, and, and those are just some of the false gospels. There's so many more. If you visit many churches today, or you turn on the TV, you'll find so-called pastors who are more than willing to preach a, a, a combination of all these false, perverted gospels. But it's easy to point the finger. More importantly... We must guard our own hearts against them. Uh, these gospels are dangerous, the ones I just mentioned. Why? Because there's, uh, the things they're offering are beneficial. You should have a happy home. There's nothing wrong with that. It, 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 it's good to have money and to be prosperous. There's nothing sinful or bad about that. There's nothing wrong with being a good person. And those things, as good as they are, though, are not the good news. They're not the gospel. And when they become tied to the message, they distort the biblical gospel. That is what was happening in Galatia. That is what's happening today. It subtly turns it into something completely different than what is presented in the Scripture. The gospel isn't that you'll become a better person or a richer person um, if you believe it. The gospel is what Jesus accomplished. Now, one preacher, he tried to imagine the church without the gospel. And so let's, let's, get, let's follow what he says. He says, what might our evangelism look like without the good news? He says, well, we'd have to replace it with something. And he said, maybe a passionate devotion to the pro-life cause. That's something we could focus on. 
or a clever appeal to consumerism by offering a sort of cost-free Christianity. Maybe we could offer fun and entertaining worship services that are void of all the boring things like, you know, prayer and, and, and deep theological truth. Or maybe our central message could be take back America, and we want to take it back to its Christian roots. In other words, this preacher says, the church without the gospel would look very much like many evangelical churches do. Today, you would think that their message isn't Jesus Christ crucified and risen, it's America needs to get back to its roots, or so on, and you fill in the blank. The point is, troublemakers in the church wasn't just an issue for Paul. It's an issue for us today. And unless we keep the gospel at the center of the church in its life and its practice, unless the cross of Christ remains the main thing, we're in a very real danger. We here, all Bible-believing churches, are in a real danger of shoving the gospel aside and replacing it with these pseudo-gospels, these things that appeal to people. It may get you big crowds, but Paul says, you know, that, that's true. It may get you big crowds, but it's not the gospel. And you're turning your back on God if you do it. That's what Martin Luther faced. You know, I quoted him earlier. At the time of the Reformation, the church had added to the gospel. It was, it was Jesus plus the sacraments, if I could put it that way. Jesus plus works. And so... Martin Luther warns us, he says, there is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute for it the doctrines of works and of human tradition. It's a very necessary, therefore, he says, that the doctrine of faith be continually read and heard in public. What's he getting at there? You may think, a lot of people think this, I've had people say it to me, oh, I already know the gospel, can't we, we got to dig a little deeper and do something different. Luther's saying, look, if we're not constantly, regularly proclaiming the gospel over and over and over again, it's going to fade from our minds. He's saying we should never tire of hearing it, and we should be on guard lest it be distorted by troublemakers. And so we need to preach and proclaim the gospel day in, day out, particularly Sunday in and Sunday out. Now, there is something else here I, I, I want to point out. Notice that the threat that we're talking about, people distorting the gospel, it, it, it comes from within the church. That's where the threat is. The church's greatest threat is not a liberal president. The church's greatest threat is not public education. Well, uh, it's not removing in God we trust from the dollar bill. All things we could uh, speak about in other venues, that's not the church's greatest threat. Um, the greatest threat to the church comes from within the church by people who pervert the gospel, who pervert the doctrines of the church. See, those Judaizers were not some outside group trying to break into the church they weren't some other organization. They were actually part of the church. And they didn't come in and say, by the way, we're a false teacher here to destroy you. Uh, they walked and talked like Christians. 
They had the right terminology. They, they talked about Jesus. And, and, and they, they, they quoted, I mean, they didn't have the Bibles like we do, but they read the Bible. They believed the Bible. They would use words like faith and salvation and God and heaven. All the things we're used to hearing, things that I've shared with you since I've been here, all those things. But they were imposters, Paul said. Jesus put it this way, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Matthew seven fifteen. Notice that they're wearing the garments of believers, sheep's clothing, but inwardly they were predatory wolves causing havoc within the church of God. Not everyone, understand, not everyone who calls themselves Christian serves Christ. Not everything that is called the gospel is actually the gospel. We must know the gospel so well that we can, inspi- we can spot an imposter if we see it. And so let's kind of just review the lessons here. Lessons that we learned from Paul. There's no other gospel than the one presented in Scripture. I'm sure most of you are not really surprised by that. that you've known that one. This gospel is based on grace alone. You probably knew that. Through faith alone, on account of Christ's life, death, and resurrection alone. The gospel is what Jesus accomplished. We learn that to turn away from the gospel is what? To turn away from God himself and come under God's curse. We learn that not everyone who calls themselves Christian serves Christ. We learn that the greatest threat to the church comes from within the church, particularly from its preachers. That's the greatest threat. We learn that the doctrine of salvation must be guarded in every generation. Uh, Have you thought about the fact that this is a church that the Apostle Paul planted and they're already distorting their belief system? Is it any wonder that churches today do the same? It must be guarded against in every generation from proclaiming a different gospel. And it must remain central. It must be the most important thing we talk about and proclaim and practice. We learn that the gospel is at stake, and so we must never remain silent but rather call out those who distort it. And we learn that to faithfully proclaim the gospel, we must desire to do what? We must desire to please God over pleasing man. Paul, that we're looking at, learned these lessons early on. And, it's, and they're lessons that every generation needs to remember. Again, back to the Reformation. The Reformers understood this. They were unwilling to stand by and watch as the leaders of the church of their day, who were who? The Pope and the Cardinals and even pastors of churches, distorted the gospel. And what did they do? The Reformers, they called them out by name, warning people about these people and the destruction that would come if they denied the pure gospel. And they took a stand, as you know, Luther said, here I stand, no matter how unpopular it was, to make sure that people in the pews heard the good news that salvation is not based on works. It's not based on the law, but on Christ and his work on the cross. See, these were men, the reformers, who desired to please God and not man. And we must do the same. There's no compromise here. There's no neutrality. 
We're not talking about styles of music. We're not even talking about some of the doctrines we believe. We don't take a stand and, and, and despise and point out other believers who differ with us on some end times issues. We're talking about the centrality of our faith. And Paul learned these lessons. We need to remember them as well. Have no tolerance at all when it comes to distorting the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, we must be willing to call out those who, do, who, who would distort it. Who would, who would uh, uh, add something to Jesus alone. The message that Christ only is their salvation when they would say, well, I don't know. When we, when we proclaim outside of Jesus, there's no other way. We need to continue to do it, even though there may be churches that are filling their pews with people and they're saying, well, I'm not going to be so dogmatic. Um, of, of, on that, though, the pastors believed and did what? The ones in the Reformation, the ones who took a stand, they, they proclaimed the exclusive claims of Christ. They took a stand there. I want to I close with a story. Now, this happened several years ago, several years ago now, um, but it, it still describes what's going on, what I was just trying to point out there a second ago. Um, it aired on Larry King Live. I'm sure you know Larry King. It was in front of a worldwide audience. Now, I first heard it. I didn't hear it on Larry King. I heard it at a conference somewhere. Steve Lawson referenced it in one of his uh, sermons and messages, and so I went and found the video on YouTube. And the guest on Larry King Live was Joel Olstein. He was introduced as and, and the, having the largest church in America. So Larry King asked him, because we've had ministers, and at that point, Larry King's referring to John MacArthur. If you ever watched any videos of Larry King, he's had John MacArthur on. And... He says, because we've had ministers on our program who said you either believe in Christ or you don't, if you believe in Christ, you're going to heaven, and if you don't, no matter what you have done in your life, you ain't. And he asked, well, what do you think, Joel? Biggest pastor, biggest church in America. And listen to his response, I'm quoting. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably a balance between, I think you have to know Christ, but if you're a believer in God, you're going to have to do some good works. I think it's a cop-out to say I'm a Christian, but I never do anything, which wasn't the point, but that's true enough. But he doesn't really answer the question. And Larry King picks up on that he doesn't answer the question. And so he says, what if you're Jewish? What if you're a Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? Olstein's answer, again, I'm quoting, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. Then Larry King interjects. If you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? Referring to the Jews and the Muslims. It sounds like Larry King gets the gospel better. They answer, again, quoting, well, I mean, he says, well, I don't know. I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I've spent a long time in India with my father. I don't know about all their religion, but I know they love God. I don't know. I've seen their sincerity. And so, here it is, worldwide television, before millions, the pastor of the largest church in America, at least at this time, says, I don't know. I don't know. What would Paul say to him? Anathema. Anathema. 
See, what the church needs is pastors and preachers who know the truth, people like the Reformers, like Luther, Calvin, Knox, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. You've heard these names. Uh, maybe in our own day, a MacArthur, a Boyce, a Sproul. And not just preachers, though. Oh, it's important because they're the ones proclaiming the message, but it needs to be you and me together, men and women in the pews that, that know the gospel, who know Jesus is the only way. And so when you look out into the world or you see your friends or your family members or your coworkers and they don't embrace Christ but they seem religious, you'll still know they need to hear the gospel. Paul leaves no room for any other truth than you either you believe in Jesus or you don't. If you believe in Christ, you are going to heaven. Know that. Those of you here, if you haven't believed, if you believe in Christ, that he died for you, that he rose for you, that he takes his sin upon you, on himself, and and gives you his righteousness, that you will go to heaven. It's promised to you. And if you don't believe that, no matter what you've done in your life, to use Larry King's words, you ain't going to heaven. That's the simple message of Paul. It's the message of Christianity. See, if you don't like that message, and I'm not saying we should be rude when we preach it. We need to be loving to people and and tolerate them in the right way and engage them. In fact, if you come to Sunday school, you're going to hear the importance of loving people that don't believe like we do. But if you don't like that message, well, reject it. Reject it. Uh, But don't claim to still be a Christian and then distort it. And so my prayer is that we here at St. Stephen, we, we will solidly embrace and boldly proclaim Christ alone. See, I want it to be said of us that we're willing to take a stand with the Apostle Paul and faithfully adhere to the one biblical gospel, that there is no other way to salvation but through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, for this conviction. Help us to stand, to speak the truth, And as Paul tells us, speak the truth in love, but to take a stand and not compromise. And for those in the church, Lord, that would distort this gospel, we pray, Father, that we'd be able to root them out, that they may repent even and turn to the truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.